I loved those, uh, those last two songs that we sang. Um, certainly, we want to invite the Holy Spirit to be in our presence today and work in our midst and, and ultimately change us in some way, maybe just a small way, but we would love for the Holy Spirit to be active in our midst this morning. But then, you know, the song before that, we, we sang about all these things we believe. And sometimes I think we forget the significance of what we believe and that most people don't believe those things. We need God to help us see and understand and actually believe those things that we were singing about. And as we get in the passage today, I think hopefully you're going to find some real encouragement related to the things that you and I believe. Here's what I know. God has been about revealing himself to all of humanity as long as history has been a thing. He started with creation, and then he has worked his way through in a variety of ways, and we have it recorded in our Bible, the Revelation, right? So he's been revealing, and humanity, we are all created to perceive We were made to see and hear and know what it is that God is revealing to us. But doesn't sin often get in the way and disrupt or obscure those things that God would love for us to see? That's exactly what we're going to see today in this passage. We're going to see God trying to reveal himself and the sinful hearts of humanity getting in the way. And keeping some from uh, getting what they need to get from God. The religious leaders that we're going to encounter today and that we have been encountering now for several weeks in the story, they saw a threat where they should have seen a gift. Here's Jesus right in front of them. He was ushered into Jerusalem. Everybody's announcing the king is here. And and you would think that everyone, particularly religious leaders, would be celebrating, going out of their minds. It's been hundreds of years. And he's finally here. But instead of that, they dig in. Jesus goes to the temple cleanses the temple, literally turning over tables. He's whipping some guys. He is kicking everybody out that is doing anything that would stand in the way of what God wants done in his house of prayer. And again, you would think the religious leaders, though they wouldn't necessarily like the conviction of it all, like who in here loves the conviction of the Lord, right? But what a gift. Why wouldn't they go, wow, we really lost our way and this king has arrived to cleanse the temple and make it right again? It reminded me in uh, 2 Kings 22, there is this moment, Israel had lost its way significantly, several evil kings, and this eight-year-old boy, Josiah, is put into royalty. His dad dies, so he's now king at eight years old. And uh, it says that Josiah walked in the ways of the Lord. And by the time he was 18, the book of the law was discovered, and he literally 
It says he tore his clothes because he was so overcome with the conviction of what Israel had become. And he didn't just cleanse the temple. He cleansed all of Israel. He literally went from town to town, tearing down the idols, killing false prophets. I mean, it was a rough scene. But the people of Israel, they welcomed the cleansing that he was doing. Why didn't that happen here? This is the king of kings showing up. Why were they so opposed? I think we'll get some idea as we look at our passage today. When we get to Luke 20, verse 40, that's where we left off last week. It said, after all of their interrogations and all of their failed attempts to trip Jesus up, it says they no longer dared ask him any question. So, rather than just sort of fading away, Jesus actually steps forward. He says, okay. Well, I'm going to start asking some questions. I'm going to put you guys in a position where you have to come to terms with what you believe. Hoping that somehow they might have ears to hear and eyes to see. So we're in a new segment. There's three parts to this segment. There is a conundrum. There's a caution. And then there's a comparison. Uh, it, It... bridges over a chapter break and hopefully you know that the chapter breaks and verses and all those things those were added much much later to our scripture so this would have just been in a in a solid flow of thought and a reader would have recognized that these three parts all go together that this is a a unified segment each part of the segment uncovers truth that would otherwise remain hidden and Each part offers freedom to those who would otherwise remain enslaved. So a beautiful, beautiful moment here, really of grace and truth. There's some hard stuff in this, but this is the grace and truth of Christ revealing himself to humanity. So let's start with the conundrum. This is in chapter 20, beginning in verse 41, and this uncovers the confounding identity of Jesus. I use that word purposefully because we can be guilty as Christians of thinking that Jesus is just self-evident. Like, doesn't everybody see that he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world and that he died for their sins? I mean, doesn't everybody get that? that? We ought to be saying, isn't it astounding that you and I not only understand that, not only believe that, but live our lives in light of that truth. That's astounding. And it's confounding when we encounter Jesus in the scriptures. And so let's pick up in verse 41. Jesus is speaking to these religious leaders. And he says, how can they they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him, the Christ, Lord. So how is he his son? That's the question. That's the conundrum. The they in this uh, reference, 
those are the ones who said Christ is David's son. They're the religious leaders that Jesus is questioning. To give you a little more context for this, we can also look in Matthew 22, where this same scene is described, but there's a little bit more information. Let me read to you verse uh, 41 and 42 of, of Matthew 22. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Same scene. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So he just asked that outright. And they said to him, the son of David. Now jump to Luke 20, 41. But he said to them, how can they, those who say that the Christ is the son of David, how can they say that? Now, I honestly wonder if the religious leaders would have thought this is like a trick question. Because everybody knows that the Christ is David's son, right? There's like all of history, everybody after the reign of King David would have expected there to be a future king, a deliverer, a Christ, a Messiah coming from his lineage. Go back to the Davidic covenant. This is in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. It's also mentioned in Psalm 89. This is God's promise, his covenant with David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, that is your lineage, shall be established forever. So anybody in Israel would have just automatically assumed that someday... God is going to deliver his people, and he will do it through someone in David's family line. Now fast forward to the birth of Christ. Gabriel, remember, he comes to Mary. He's announcing to her that she is going to have a son. And Gabriel told Mary that her child would be called the Son of the Most High... And that the Lord God would give to the child the throne of his father, David. So she's expecting that. And I'm sure word spread in that way. Then in Luke 18, remember when Jesus is heading through Jericho on his way up to Jerusalem? We covered that passage uh, probably a couple months ago. But um, remember when he passes the blind man? It's blind Bartimaeus. What does he yell out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, how did he know that? I think everybody knew that. That they were watching for a son of David to be their king. And word had spread that Jesus looked as much like the king they were expecting as anybody that had ever come their way. Lastly, in two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Mark, in the triumphal entry, all four passages or Gospels describe that, but in those in particular, the people identified Jesus with David. They specifically name him Hosanna, son of David. So there is this expectation, and when Jesus says, so why would... They call the Christ David's son. I'm sure the religious leaders are like, where have you been? <laughs> Everybody expects him to be David's son. Now for the conundrum. Jesus is saying, okay, you say 
the Christ is David's son, why then does King David refer to the Christ as his Lord in Psalm 110? The heat gets turned up. The pressure is now applied. Because Jesus is asking them a question that they literally don't know what to do with. They're fine with the king being in the lineage of David. But for, for David to call him Lord, it's like they must have just kind of skipped over that when they were reading Psalm 110. Which was, by the way, one of the most popular and common uh, psalms among the Israelites. Let's look at the statement in Psalm 110. This is literally what David wrote and said. I have it up there on the screen for you. So this is King David speaking, and he says, The Lord says to my Lord. Those two words, they're different in Hebrew. So the first Lord is Yahweh. So that is a reference to God the Father. The second Lord is Adonai which is also a reference to God. That's a title for God, but it's obviously different than Yahweh, right? So David is referencing two persons of the Godhead. Now that's a little bit of a stretch, right? Now we're talking about the Trinity. But he, but he most definitely is referring to Christ the Messiah and calling him God. And Jesus is asking these religious leaders to make some sense of that. How can the Christ be David's son and the Lord at the same time? And the answer is he would have to be fully God and fully man. And that blows everybody's circuits. See, they never ever expected the Messiah to be God in the flesh. In their minds, that was blasphemous. That was idolatrous. Like God would never, ever inhabit human form. That would be beneath him. So he can be David's son, and he can be the most godly king and leader ever to walk the earth. He just can't be God. So they got to figure this out, because David certainly ascribed deity to the Christ. It's confounding. But but most definitely Jesus is Lord in the flesh. John writes about this in the first chapter of John and and guys as I'm saying all this this may sound like a seminary class or something but we just sang a minute ago about all these things we believe. And what I don't ever want to be true of this church is that we just believe things because we heard it somewhere. And because that's just kind of the thought of the day. It's kind of trendy. If this isn't true, then we should close the doors and go find something else to do. But if it's true, it changes everything. It actually changes the way you and I choose to live every day of our life. Here's what John wrote. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word and, the, and God, something's going on there. He, that is the Word, was in the beginning with God. 
all things were made through him. And without him, not anything was made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's confounding. But God became man. A friend of mine who is also a pastor who taught this passage reminded me of a great little section in uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. He writes on the incarnation. That's what we're talking about here in chapter 5. And I want to read a segment of this. It's, it's a long quote, but I have never read anything better to help us really put together what we're talking about this morning. So just sit back and listen to uh, this great insight. He writes, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of the atonement, nor in the Easter message of the resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. The second person of the Godhead became the second man or the second Adam. Determining human destiny. The second representative head of the race. And that he took humanity without loss of deity. So that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. It is here in the thing that happened at that first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught, taught to talk, like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. This is the real stumbling block of Christianity. It is from misbelief or at least inadequate belief about the incarnation that difficulties at other points in the gospel story usually spring. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, these other difficulties dissolve. Now he explains that. If Jesus had been no more than a very remarkable godly man, the difficulties in believing what the New Testament tells us about his life and work would be truly mountainous. But if Jesus was the same person as the eternal word, the Father's agent in creation through whom also he made the worlds, from Hebrews 1. It is no wonder if fresh acts of creative power marked his coming into this world and his life in it and his exit from it. It is not strange that he, the author of life, should rise from the dead. If he was truly God the Son, it is much more startling that he should die than that he should rise again. The incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. 
That is the crucial message of Christmas. The message of the incarnation. And it begs a question that we have to ask ourselves and we ought to offer to everyone that we can. Jesus asked this question of his disciples. I think it's in John 9. Who do you say that I am? That's all that matters. For you, as an individual, as a person, right now, this moment, the most important question you must answer, who is Jesus? Is he a great teacher? Is he a wonderful prophet? Is he a great example of morality? Or is he God in the flesh? If so, there's a whole lot of other stuff that follows. Now, one last quick word on that term, Lord. Um, Often we think of lordship only in terms of authority. It's like one person has power over another person. But this is far more than just authority. It's also ability. When we refuse to give Jesus authority in our life, we simultaneously forfeit the infinite resources, his ability that are available to us. So authority and ability go together when we talk about the lordship of Christ. So, no real response from the uh, scribes with the conundrum. So Jesus moves on, um, beginning in verse 45. This is the caution, and this uncovers the terminal condition of self-righteousness. We're going to see it in living color. Verse 45, and in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now that must have been troubling for the scribes after the question they couldn't answer. This is not getting better, it's getting worse. But all of it, grace and truth. God trying to reveal himself to broken human beings. We're told that he said this in the hearing of all the people. So he is warning everyone about the condition of their leadership. But also he said it directly to his disciples. So Jesus was uncovering the true vulnerability that they would face once they were leaders of the church. See, I do think Jesus wants them to know, hey, don't don't think that this couldn't happen to you. Don't sit back and look at these scribes in all judgment like, man, what a sorry bunch of leaders. You ought to be sobered. You ought to see that and beg for God to help you stay the course. And not give yourself to the very same enticements that these guys did. Look at that. They like to walk around in long robes. They flaunt their symbols of achievement. They love greetings in the marketplace. They crave public recognition. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They seek prominence even in spiritual settings. As if there's some kind of competition going on. 
They love the places of honor at feasts. They strive for social superiority. Their identity, their ego is so wound up in that. And they devour widows' houses. This is the most startling of all. I mean, (laughs) these guys know their Old Testaments. And there is almost nothing on earth that God has greater compassion for than those who are defenseless. And yet they're exploiting the most vulnerable in their community for their own benefit. And then for pretense, they make long prayers. They relentlessly fabricate an impression of piety. But it's all a facade. And for them, and for the people, and for the disciples, and for us, these leaders will have greater accountability for God. There is almost nothing that is more sobering for me as a pastor and a teacher than to read those words. But certainly we all ought to be mindful of that accountability. These leaders are completely at odds with everything they claim to know and believe about their God. Now the people, just a couple of clarifications here and and possible applications. They weren't cautioned against leaders in general. They were just cautioned against leaders who are self-absorbed. So that would be a great caution for all of us. Like, don't follow somebody who seems to be more about themselves than they are about the mission of God and his honor. Beware of self-serving, self-righteous approach to ministry regardless of the position that you hold. It's always tempting to make it about you, for all of us. So be cautious of that. Um, One of my greatest fears for the 21st century church is the cost of her obsession with celebrity leaders. Great attention and allegiance is given to a bunch of leaders who are not known for their godly character. They're known for their star power. And it's like, well, I want to be on their team. But unfortunately, we have seen many of those leaders go down over and over and over again. And I'll tell you, I feel great compassion because no one, can bear that burden. It's fleshly, it's empty, and it is doomed to fail. So it's both ways. No leader should ever aspire to that. But no church should ever expect their leader to be that. We don't need that. We have Jesus, and he's enough. All of this stems from self-righteousness, the very last thing on earth that broken humanity ought uh, ought to go after. We are grossly dependent, and that leads us to this comparison at the end, again, flowing right out of this caution. Jesus provides a comparison for his listeners 
And it uncovers the power of radical devotion and dependence. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. So in the temple, near the court of women, there was this space where... um, and. We don't have archaeological evidence for this, but there is writing from uh, Jewish history that tells us there were 13 metal containers shaped like a trumpet, all kind of lined up together. And as Jews would come and give their free will offering, they would drop it in those trumpet-like containers. They were metal, so it made noise. It's out visible for everyone to see. And Jesus is positioned in such a place where he can see all that happening. And it literally, the text, it's like he's talking about, you know, self-righteousness. And then he looks up and, and he's like, ho, oh, check it out. Hey, guys, let me tell you something here. Let me pay attention to this. There's a long line of people, the rich, and they're all dropping in their contributions. He doesn't critique that. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with that. Just merely making an observation. He sees the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. We might even say, well, that's good. (laughs) I mean, at least they're giving, right? That's, That's terrific. But then he goes on to say he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. We're left to assume that the rich made sizable contributions. And again, they didn't have paper money or write checks and they weren't, you know, doing stuff online. They were literally dropping coins in. So you can imagine some really wealthy person coming up and it's like... (laughs) And everybody's like, whoa, that was a big one. And then you see this poor widow perhaps hobbling up to one of those little trumpet containers. And you just hear this, dink. Now, what does everybody immediately think? Wow. That was really something. See, we're all conditioned to think more in terms of quality than we are in or quantity instead of quality. And Jesus goes right at it. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, all of those rich that made their contributions. Now, Matthew, he's a tax collector and he knows money. So I could see him speaking up and just saying, hey, by the way, Jesus, I I don't know if you quite picked up on that. I've done some numbers here and she just put in these two little coins that were worth about one one one-hundredth of a day's wage. So I just don't quite understand. How could that be more than everybody else? So they're they're listening. The economy of God is nothing like that of this world. We just think more is better. But Jesus seems to think more about the proportion of the gift than he does about the portion itself. 
And it's a paradox. Um, Think about all of these. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Those who lose their life for Christ's sake, they find it. Those who wish to be greatest among us must serve everybody, not lord over them. The weak are strong. The last shall be first, and the first last. And the widow's two coins represent the largest gift of the day. It's a paradox, but it is a beautiful picture of devotion and dependence. Here's why Jesus explains. Verse 4, the rich, they contributed out of their abundance, and she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Abundance obviously has this idea of overflowing. It's abounding. There's more than enough. Poverty is obviously a deficiency. It's a shortfall. This woman needed what she had, and what she had wasn't enough. And yet she gave it all. And what's interesting about this passage is usually, and this isn't a bad thing, but we appeal to this often as she's a model of giving. But it's just important that we don't lose our focus here. It's not about the money. Remember Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The only thing that money really does for us is it shows us what's going on in here. God doesn't need our money. It's not like he's kind of tight this month. Recessions don't set him back. He doesn't need our money. Our money is a great window into what is most important to us. So we don't give to prove something. Our giving proves something to us. Jesus shows, Daryl Bach uh, writes, that it is not the number of coins given, but the nature of the heart that gives them. And it is interesting, don't miss, remember, the widows were mentioned in, this, in the last part. They were the ones that the scribes took advantage of. They exploited them. And we might say, well, here's a great example. This poor widow, she's just getting, you know, taken advantage of. She's giving everything away, probably because one of those nasty old scribes told her to. But I wonder if there's a different thing happening here. I wonder if Jesus is saying, listen, to you, that widow looks completely vulnerable. But don't forget that her father is looking out for her. She's okay. Even if her life comes to a tragic end, she has all of eternity, which was reflected in this sacrificial gift. She gave because she's completely confident. God's got me in this life and in the next. I'm fine. And I I feel prompted to give, so I'm going to give. And I'm going to trust in him. Man, that's challenging, isn't it? Isn't it tempting to approach our giving? And again, this is a heart thing, not a money thing. But isn't it tempting 
to think about what's the least I can give rather than what's the most I could give. It's challenging. It's challenging for me. But a beautiful expression of devotion and dependence. Like, let's not remove the need for faith, even in something as simple as our giving. Let's live by faith. Let's trust God. Let's live in such a way where He needs to be God in our lives. Here's what I know. No one gives all that they have to God until they first have given all that they are to God. You give yourself, and then all your stuff, it'll make sense. You'll know what to do with it. But you got to give yourself first. Last thought related to this idea of giving. Our treasure leaves a trail where our heart is traveling. So where is your heart traveling these days? It's a great opportunity to really come to terms with what we believe. That's really what we've been talking about this morning is this great opportunity for all of us to reflect and to perhaps make some adjustments based upon what is really true. Give you an opportunity to uh, ask the question we always ask, so what? What difference do these three parts make? How might God call you to make an adjustment, to take a step of faith in some way? And we sang, inviting the Holy Spirit to be here, to speak to us, to reveal to us the things that we need to know and believe and respond to. So I want to invite you to do that. Ask the Holy Spirit right now to speak to you. To show you in here what it is he wants you to see in here today. Prayerfully ask him to do that.
as we uh, we come to you this morning, and uh, as you know and as we know, we live in a world where uh, truth is hard to find these days. It's so confusing, it's confounding, and Lord, the people of that day and today, many people are still confounded about who you are, and yet throughout history, throughout the history of the world, you have revealed yourself to us through creation, through your, through your word, through other people. And uh, Lord, this text points us back to, as Monty said, that most important question, who do you say I am? Lord, I pray this, you would take this word and, and the seeds that come, come from it would, would grow in such a way in us that we declare that you are who you say you are, the God-man. And in light of that, uh, we would live more and more with our eyes toward you and eternity, that we would grow into maturity, grow into a, a person that looks like Christ. So, Lord, help us to follow and chase after you well, because we know who you are. The more we know about you, uh, the, more, uh, the more we can trust you in day to day. So help us to turn our eyes upward. We're grateful for your word that was unpacked this morning with power and truth and grace. And we love you. And everyone said, amen.